Let's pray. Heavenly Father, in the name of your mighty Son, Jesus Christ, we ask for your blessing upon the word that is taught and preached today. We pray that your word would be felt, that the Holy Spirit would drive home the truths that we find in this passage to each heart. And if there are people here today that have never truly been born again, Lord, would you do that work today? In Jesus' name, amen. Luke chapter 18, verse 35. As Jesus was approaching Jericho, a blind man was sitting by the road begging. Now hearing a crowd going by, he began to inquire what this was. They told him that Jesus of Nazareth was passing by. And he called out, saying, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Those who led the way were sternly telling him to be quiet. But he kept crying out all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and commanded that he be brought to him. And when he came near, he questioned him, What do you want me to do for you? And he said, Lord, I want to regain my sight. And Jesus said to him, Receive your sight. Your faith has made you well. Immediately he regained his sight and began following him, glorifying God. And when all the people saw it, they gave praise to God. Now back in Luke chapter 9, verse 51, there is a new trajectory in the gospel. There is a, a new flow. Something new is happening at that point. Let me read it to you. Luke 9.51 says, When the days were approaching for his ascension, he was determined to go to Jerusalem. Okay, so the days approaching for his ascension, where he's going to ascend back to heaven. He came down from heaven into this world on a mission, and he's almost ready to go back, to ascend back to the Father. So he's talking here about his death that is approaching. But it says here he was determined to go to Jerusalem. Because he knows it's at Jerusalem that he's going to suffer and die for the sins of the world. And that's exactly what we were reading about last week in chapter 18, verses 31 to 33. He took the twelve aside and said to them, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and all things which are written through the prophets about the Son of Man will be accomplished. For he will be handed over to the Gentiles, and will be mocked, and mistreated, and spit upon, and after they have scourged him, they will kill him, and the third day he will rise again. So what we have here are the last few miles of Jesus' journey before he arrives in Jerusalem. He's in Jericho at this section. Jericho is about 15 miles away from Jerusalem. So this is about a day's walk from Jerusalem. Jesus has been... He's been journeying, not straight to Jerusalem, but in and out of villages and towns, preaching and teaching and healing and casting out demons and doing his ministry. But finally, he's come to the very last few miles before he will enter Jerusalem and ultimately suffer and die. So this is just a few days before his death, and it's a few miles away. And when he comes into Jerusalem, before he dies, there are two men that he has determined he's going to make trophies of his sovereign grace. And these two men are the rejects of society. They're the people nobody wants. There's a blind beggar, and there is a despised and hated tax collector named Zacchaeus. Bartimaeus 
and Zacchaeus are going to be the last two trophies of grace before Jesus goes to the cross. Nobody wanted these men. They were the marginalized of society. In that culture, they were the lowest of the low. They were the outcasts. And yet what we find here in Luke's gospel is that Jesus loved them and he cared about them and he extended his mercy toward them and brought them into the kingdom. Now, we're going to be focusing on a man by the name of Bartimaeus. Luke doesn't give us his name, but if you read the parallel account in Mark, we find that his name was Bartimaeus. And do you know what those three letters B-A-R mean in Hebrew? It means a son of. So this man was the son of Timaeus, or son of Timothy, the son of honor. Now, Matthew's gospel tells us there, there were two blind men. Both Mark and Luke just mentioned the one probably because Bartimaeus was the most prominent of the two. But there were two men involved in this situation. And it's my conviction that Jesus not only healed Bartimaeus, but I also believe he saved him. I believe Bartimaeus came into Jesus' kingdom that day. Take a look with me at verse 42. It's uh, Luke 18, verse 42. Jesus said to him, receive your sight, your faith has made you well. Do you know what that literally says in the Greek? Your faith has saved you. The Greek word is for salvation. It can include healing, it can include deliverance of many kinds, but at its core, it literally is talking about being saved. Jesus says, receive your sight, your faith has not only made you well in the physical realm, but I believe he was made well in the spiritual realm. Now, why would I think that? Look at verse 43. Immediately he regained his sight, and what's he begin to do? He follows Jesus, and he got, starts glorifying God. Following Jesus, glorifying God. This man be, took the trademarks of a Christian. He now is an, an obedient man. He follows Jesus, and he's a worshipful man. He glorifies God. So, I, I, I believe this man was both healed and saved. Now, if you follow Luke's train of thought through this gospel, you find some interesting things. Luke is showing us example after example in this chapter and on into chapter 19 of how God cares about the rejects of society. Go back to verses 9 to 14. Jesus gives a parable there about a Pharisee who is a fine, upstanding, righteous man in the community and the most despised and hated man in the community, a tax collector. And who becomes the hero of the story? The tax collector. He goes home saved, justified and forgiven, and this self-righteous man goes home unforgiven and condemned. Jesus is showing God's care and concern for anyone, no matter who they are, who will cry out in desperation for God's mercy, like the tax collector. And then you find this little incident about the babies. Parents were bringing their babies to Jesus so that he would lay his hands on them and bless them. What do the disciples do? They're rebuking those parents. Don't do that. The master is much more, he's much too busy and much more important to have times for the like of these little babies. Remember that children in that society, it wasn't a child-central society. Children were to be seen and not heard. They were like the lowest on the totem pole. <laughs> so Jesus is taking the most unimportant in that culture and raising them up and saying, I love children. I care about children. I want to bless the children. And then we come to this section, and we find Jesus having care and concern for a blind beggar, 
a pauper. A man living in ab abject poverty. Someone who's sort of marginalized by the rest of Jewish culture and society. And Jesus takes care and concern and love for this man. And then we come to chapter 19, and we are introduced to probably the most hated man in Jericho. Because this man was extremely rich. And do you know where he got all his riches? By ripping off his Jewish brothers and sisters to give most of it to the hated Romans and then lining his pockets with the rest. And so, of course, they hated this guy. But Jesus looks up into a tree, never met him in his life, calls him by name, Zacchaeus, come on down, I've got to stay at your house. And he saves that man. He came to seek and to save that which is lost. So you see how Luke is showing us one after another after another of the rejects and the outcasts of society and how that God still loves them. And even when we don't care about them, God does. I love that about this, this book. The Gospel of Luke has been called the Gospel of the Underdog. And it's, there's a good reason for that. Luke focuses his attention on the underdog. He's writing to Gentiles. And so he focuses on Gentiles, women, children, tax collectors, sinners, prostitutes, people like that. I'm not to say that there's something, anything wrong about women, but in that society, they weren't classified as equal with the men. They were down, the women and the children were together. And so Luke, more than any of the other Gospels, focuses on these kinds of people, the down and outers, and shows how God loves them and cares for them. So this morning... I want to show you four different aspects of this story. Four different aspects. His condition, his cry, his call, and his cure. First of all, Bartimaeus' condition. Look at verse 35. As Jesus was approaching Jericho, a blind man was sitting by the road begging. He was blind. First thing to learn about this man. He was a blind man. Now, in first century Jewish culture, that wasn't all that uncommon. In fact, it was about eight to ten times more common then than it is today. In fact, it was very, uh, it was the exception to find someone from the lower classes that had perfect eyesight. So this was a, a fairly common malady that they had to deal with. Notice also that this man was begging, and those two go together, don't they? If you're blind, it's very hard to be able to have a job, to be able to see, to do anything. And so his blindness had reduced him to a life of begging just to be able to survive. Now, it's interesting where, where he's begging. He's begging in the very best place that he could. He's by the road. And do you know what's happening at this particular time? Do you know what's going on on the streets of Jericho at this particular time? Remember, Passover is only about a week away. Do you know what every male Jew has to do three times a year? They've got to go up to Jerusalem, no matter where they live. And all those Jews that live up in Galilee, they would come south, and rather than go through the Samaritan territory where they'd be defiled, they would cross over the Jordan River on the east side, come south, then they'd cross over the Jordan River again and go up to Jerusalem, and the town that's right smack dab in the middle of the road that goes to Jerusalem is Jericho. So you've got these pilgrims flooding through the streets of Jericho on their way to Jerusalem, and this blind man sitting right by the side of that road with all these people coming through begging. 
This man probably lived in rags and poverty. That's what I would imagine if he's a beggar. He would have lived a life of misery, of wretchedness, of gloom, probably a sense of helplessness. He had to rely completely on others just to have food to get by for one more day. And as such, he's a picture of millions of lost people today. Lost people are spiritually blind and they're spiritual paupers in God's sight. And so, think about those, those things for a minute. Try to put yourself in the, in the place of Bartimaeus and instead of focusing on the physical blindness, focus on the blindness of men's souls for just a moment. 2 Corinthians 4.4 4 says, The God of this world, the devil, has blinded the minds of the unbelieving, that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. So Satan has blinded men. They can't see. Over in 1 Corinthians 2.14, it says that the natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God because they're foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they're spiritually appraised. He's blind to them. He can't understand them. It's like a blind man trying to see something you're describing. It's just, just impossible. Over in the book of Ephesians, Paul describes this state of the blind or the, the lost man in chapter 4, verse 17 and 19. He says, So this I say, and affirm together with the Lord, that you walk no longer just as the Gentiles also walk, and here he describes their walk, in the futility of their mind, being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of the heart. And they, having become callous, have given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. Now notice the words he uses to describe the unregenerate person. He uses words like the futility of their mind, darkened in their understanding. He talks about the ignorance that is in them. All of these words tell us that they have a certain blindness in an area of their life. It's not to the things of the world. Their, their sight's perfect when it comes to that. But when it comes to the things of God, the things of the Spirit, the beauty and glory of Christ, they just can't see it. They're blind to it. Let's say, let's say that I was taking a blind man and we took a trip together to the Grand Canyon. And we stand there on the brink of the Grand Canyon and I'm going, Whoa! I can't believe my eyes! This, this is amazing. And the blind man goes, what, what, what are you talking about? It's a, we're, we're, don't you see it? I mean, it's right there. We're standing on the brink. It just blows my mind to think of that. And he said, well, what are you talking about? This is the Grand Canyon. What's the Grand Canyon? Well, it's, it's a giant hole in the ground. <laughs> it's like a mile deep, 18 miles wide and 277 miles long. I mean, it's incredible. And so this blind man can hear the facts and the figures. And he can try to piece those things together, but he'll never see the glory of the Grand Canyon until he's healed, his eyesight is restored, and guess what he's going to say when he sees the Grand Canyon? Whoa! <laughs> I can't believe my eyes! This is breathtaking! Because now he can see the glory of the Grand Canyon. So lost people are, are blinded to the glory of Christ. Not only that, but they're spiritual paupers. They possess, a, they're in a state of spiritual poverty. 
They have nothing that they can recommend themselves to God. They have nothing of their own, no righteousness of their own, that they can bring to God by which He will accept them. They are penniless. They are destitute in a spiritual sense. Let's say you're indebted. Let's say you're in debt $100,000 to a banker. And you go, I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to pay this debt off. And so you go walking down the street and you start picking up trash, putting it in your, your shopping cart, and you wheel that shopping cart into the bank and you say, Mr. Bank Manager, I'm come to pay my debt. Here you go. What's the bank manager going to do with you? Throw you out, right? <laughs> you, you crazy man. You know, you can't pay off your debt with garbage. But we, we bring our righteousness, our supposed righteousness to God, and it looks like garbage in His sight. We have nothing that we can pay off our debt with. We need the riches that come only from Jesus Christ. His righteousness that He lived is a gift that He grants those who trust Him. Praise God. So, this blind beggar is a picture of millions and millions of people today. People that you know, your neighbors, the people you work with, your friends. They need their eyes opened, and they need to be given the gift of God's righteousness. Now, notice, secondly, his cry. Verse 36 to 39. Let's go back to Luke 18. Verse 36 says, Now, hearing a crowd going by, he began to inquire what this was. They told him that Jesus of Nazareth was passing by. And he called out, saying, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Those who led the way were sternly telling him to be quiet. But he kept crying out all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. Now notice the words he uses here, called out. The word in the Greek means to shout. He's not whispering, he's shouting. He's shouting. And the word cried Verse 39, he kept crying. That word means to scream. <laughs> it's used of women in childbirth. It's used of soldiers uttering a war cry as they go into battle. You've heard of the rebel yell. I imagine it was something like that. At the top of their lungs, they're screaming, going into battle, and they're intimidating the enemy with that scream. It's used of demons who scream and cry out when Jesus is in their presence. So this man is shouting loudly, and he's screaming, trying to get the attention of Jesus. Now, notice certain things about this cry. First of all, the urgency of the cry. This man couldn't see anything. Everything was pitch dark to him, but he could hear. And it says in verse 36, hearing a crowd going by. He knew something's up. He could hear the shouts and the laughter and the buzz and the excitement and all the conversations going on at the same time. Now, he was used to pilgrims coming by, but this, this was different. Pilgrims going by was different from this crowd. Both Matthew and Mark say it was a large crowd. So get a picture in your mind. The, the streets are flooded with people. Now, why? Because Jesus of Nazareth was passing by. And Jesus had attracted incredible attention in his day. The crowds were enormous of people that followed him. They wanted to see his miracles. They wanted to see him heal blind people and raise the dead and multiply fish and loaves. And so I'm estimating in the thousands are, are walking down the street following Jesus as he's resolutely making his way to Jerusalem.
Now, they had heard a lot about this man, and many of them were wondering, could he be the Messiah? Anticipation is at a fever pitch. They know that he's resolutely headed to Jerusalem. So why? What, what's up? Well, they're wondering, is this the time when he is going to establish his kingdom? Is he going to defeat the Romans? Are the Jews going to be the top dog? And is Jesus Christ going to be a political savior? And so everything, everybody's at a fever pitch with anticipation, wondering if now's the time. And so all these crowds are flooding the streets. And this blind man knows, hey, it's now or never for me. Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. He'd heard of some of the miraculous accounts of Jesus healing people. Somebody probably no doubt had told him, yeah, not too long ago in Jerusalem, Jesus was there and he healed a blind man, blind from birth. And can't you imagine hope leaping up in his heart? If he did that for somebody else, maybe he could do that for me. And Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. This is my opportunity, my, my one window of opportunity. I've got to get his attention. And so he starts to shout and to scream. I imagine he must have been like a man on a deserted island who sees a ship way out at sea and he's jumping up and down, screaming and hollering, hey, hey, over here, come get me. Or there's a guy coming in a helicopter. Can't you see me? I'm down here. He's trying to get Jesus' attention. What about you? If you're not saved, you're just like Bartimaeus. At one time, you were exactly like Bartimaeus. And if you're not a Christian today, Jesus is passing by. He's near. You have a short window of opportunity. This may be your only chance. You, ha you, you and I have no idea. We, tomorrow is not guaranteed to us. We could drive home today, be hit by a car, and die on our way home from church today. In fact, my employee was hit by a drunk driver last Friday morning with a head-on collision. Thank God he wasn't killed. He wasn't even hurt. But our vehicle was absolutely demolished and destroyed. Total loss. That could happen to any one of us. Jesus is passing by this morning. And if you're not a Christian, you need to be like blind Bartimaeus and feel the urgency that you've got to get his attention because you need your eyes to be opened and you need your soul to be saved. So, first of all, the urgency of his cry. Secondly, the tenacity of his cry. This guy is shouting at the top of his lungs. And how does the crowd feel about it? Shut up, you old fool. Can't you see? This is the master. He's the Messiah. He has no time for the likes of you. And so they're sternly telling him to be quiet. And what does he do? He shouts all the more. <laughs> this guy will not be denied. I, I love the spiting spirit you find in this guy, right? He's like the underdog that goes into the ring, and here's a Goliath in there, but he's, he's not going down. Doesn't matter what. He's in that ring until, until it's over. Now, this is a perfect illustration of what Jesus taught in Luke 18.1. He told a parable to show that at all times they ought to pray and not to lose heart. Well, here's a good illustration of a man who always prayed and would not lose heart. He's also a great illustration of Luke 16, 16. Jesus said the law and the prophets were proclaimed until John. Since that time, the gospel of the kingdom of God has been preached and everyone is forcing his way into it. The violent take it by force. 
This man is going to force his way into the kingdom one way or the other. He's going to get Jesus' attention if, it, if it's the last thing he does. This man didn't care if the whole world told him to shut up. He just kept shouting louder. And notice he's a professional beggar. This, that's what he did all day, every day. He's like those guys in the intersections with their signs. That, that's how he got by. And so he's not a shy person. He'd, he'd cast all caution to the wind by this point. You know, the, the, the crowd, they felt this is embarrassing. I mean, j just be quiet. Stop that. I mean, can't you hear Jesus is trying to teach the multitude? Just knock it off. But this man was, was not a shy man. This man lacked all social protocol, didn't he? He didn't fit into the polite norms of the day. He, he didn't care about any of that. All he wanted was to see again. So he was going to do whatever it took to get Jesus. He wouldn't give up. I wonder about you and I. Have you ever felt like Bartimaeus? Have you ever felt like you wanted God's attention? That you wanted to know that God loved you and was concerned about you and was interested in you and you needed Him to answer prayer. You needed His attention. I would encourage you to have the tenacity of Bartimaeus. That's what we're taught. Luke 18 ones. Always to pray. Don't lose heart. Go again and again and again like that widow knocking on the judge's door until he opens up. Satan is going to shout at you, shut up. You're too wicked. He'll never hear you. You have failed so many times. You've made resolution and broken it. Made a resolution and broken it. He has no time for the likes of you. Remember, God's a very important person. <laughs> He's not interested in someone who breaks his promises. Just, just go away. Just be quiet. But you have to overcome that. And you have to know that God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that He loves the outcast. Now look at the expectancy of His cry. I believe Bartimaeus had real faith. Why? Because notice how he addresses Jesus. They said, Jesus of who? Nazareth is passing by. Does Bartimaeus say, Jesus, son of Nazareth, have mercy on me? No. He says, Jesus, son of David. Now, why is that important? What's the title son of David mean? That means he's the Messiah. Second Samuel chapter 7 says, God is speaking through the prophet Nathan to David, and he says, I make a promise to you that one of your descendants will sit upon your throne, and his kingdom will have no end. So this phrase, the son of David, was was a title the people of Israel used for the, the Messiah who is to come into the world and sit upon David's throne to be a king. Now, we've already seen this in Luke's Gospel. Do you remember when the, the uh, angel Gabriel came to Mary back in chapter 1? This is what he says in verse 32, talking about her baby that was to be born. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. In other words, he will fulfill the prophecy of 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 12 and 13. He's the son of David, the Messiah. When Jesus is coming into Jerusalem in this victorious march, in Matthew 21, verse 9, it says the crowds... We're shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David! 
So this title, Son of David, means the Messiah. So the blind Bartimaeus, they said Jesus of Nazareth is passing by, and this faith is leaping up in his heart. He's got to be the Messiah. He's got to be. I've heard of the miracles that he's done. In fact, this blind man no doubt had heard the rabbis preach from Isaiah 35, verses 5 and 6. And they had explained Isaiah 35 to be, when the Messiah comes, this is what will happen. Then the eyes of the blind will be opened, and the ears of the deaf will be unstopped. Then the lame will leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute will shout for joy. The waters will break forth in the wilderness and streams in the Arabah. Well, people who are deaf have been, their ears have been unstopped. The lame have leaped for joy. And I've heard of one blind man that Jesus gave back his sight. He's got to be the Messiah, the son of David. So there's faith. There's faith in who Jesus is here. Not only that, there's faith in what Jesus is going to do for him. There's a sense of expectancy that Jesus is going to heal him. Why do I say that? Because in Mark's gospel, it says he threw off his cloak and ran to Jesus. Now, what do you think the most valuable possession a blind beggar has? It's his cloak, because that's his blanket at night. He would wrap himself up in that cloak, kind of like homeless people. They get in a cardboard box, anything to try to keep warm. If he loses this, he's sunk, but he doesn't expect to remain blind anymore. So he leaves that cloak behind, and he stumbles and gropes his way and finds his way to Jesus. There's expectancy that's birthed in his heart. What about you and I? When we cry to the Lord, we've got to cry in faith, like this blind Bartimaeus. We should have a sense of expectancy that God is going to hear this cry. Now, sometimes we don't know exactly what he's going to do, do we? That's the hard part. We don't always know what God is going to do, but we can expect that He is in heaven and He will hear our cry and He will answer according to what is right and good in our lives. So this man confessed that he was Messiah. There is a sense of urgency, tenacity, expectancy, and the last one is humility. There's a sense of humility to his cry. He didn't say, Lord... I've lived a pretty good life. I've attended the synagogue every week. I've been to all the religious festivals. I paid my tithes. So based on that, Lord, would you heal me? He doesn't say, Lord, Son of David, give me justice. Give me what I deserve. <laughs> he says, have mercy. Mercy. Mercy is what a wretched person cries out for in their wretchedness. They want to be relieved of their misery. That's what it is to be shown mercy. This man was a wretched man. He was a miserable man. And he's not crying out that Jesus would give him what he deserves because he's a humble man. He's been brought low. He's just saying, Lord, I, I don't deserve anything, but would you have mercy on this poor blind beggar? And that's the kind of attitude we need to come to the Lord with. Not a high and mighty, proud spirit, you know, I hear so many people, well, this is just the, how the world speaks, but they say, why me? Why me, Lord? I mean, of all the people here in Sacramento, why do I have to suffer this affliction? I don't deserve this. Is that true? Strictly speaking, what do all of us actually deserve? Hell, everlasting judgment, every single one of us for our sin. 
So anything that's better than hell is mercy. And if you're a lost sinner and you're still alive, you've been given mercy just to have the breath today. You could be in everlasting burnings. So it was a humble cry. It was a tenacious cry. It was an expectant cry. And it was a believing cry. Now let's go over to the third one, his call. His call. First of all, look at Jesus' compassion in this call. Note the contrast between Jesus and the crowd. There's a huge contrast going on. The crowd's telling him, shut up, you old man. Nobody wants you. Just, you're annoying. You're irritating. Just stop that. But Jesus hears his cry and stops. He's walking along the road. He hears this cry of the beggar and he stops. That is significant. <laughs> they told him that Jesus was passing by. He calls out, Son of David, have mercy on me. They told him, shut up and be quiet. And Jesus, verse 40, stopped and commanded that he be brought to him. The desperate cry of the poorest, most wretched soul stops Jesus in his tracks. See his heart here. See his compassion for sinners. See his heart going out to this wretched man who's in his desperation crying for mercy. God takes lightly those we esteem, but he runs to rescue those we despise. Joshua was able to stop the sun in its tracks, but this poor blind beggar stopped the Lord of heaven and earth in his tracks. Jesus turns around and notices him and pays attention to him. You know, Jesus must have had a lot of heavy stuff on his mind. He's going up to die. I imagine he was thinking about his impending death. Perhaps he was teaching the multitude as he's walking by. But in spite of all that, he's willing to be interrupted for the sake of this man. What about you? Have you ever felt all alone? Have you ever felt like nobody wanted you? That's how this man must have felt. Nobody wanted him. He feels rejected. He feels unloved. He feels like, why me? Why? I, look at the situation. He's miserable. He's wretched. But when we are feeling that way, we need to remember that we have a Savior whose heart is full of compassion. And that if we cry to Him in faith, He hears. Well, He'll stop. He'll turn His ear. He will listen to you. He will pay attention to your cry. And even if it doesn't seem like that, sometimes it seems like we just go through dark times, doesn't it? And we don't see God moving, and we wonder, where are you? What's happening? We must have faith. We must know that He's the Son of David. He's not just Jesus of Nazareth. He's the Messiah, the Son of David, who can help. So we see His compassion in the call. Notice also Jesus' command in this call. Take a look here. Verse 40, Jesus stopped, and He commanded that He be brought to Him. Mark's Gospel says that Jesus said, Call him here. This was a summons by the Lord of heaven and earth. The Sovereign Lord is issuing a summons to this blind beggar. Come here. Now Jesus could have walked to him, but he commanded and called that man to him. If you are a Christian, the reason is because Jesus Christ has called you. I wonder if you realize that today. 
Nobody ever becomes a Christian without this summons from the Lord of heaven and earth, Jesus Christ, to come. It's a command, but in, in the case of the effectual call, it is, it is irresistible. Now in the Bible, there's two types of calls. There is a general call, and there's an effectual call. There's a gospel call, and there is an inward call. One kind of call reaches the outward ear, and that's as far as it goes. And sinners resist that one. But there's another one that comes, and it's so powerful that it gets to the heart. And it overcomes resistance. That's why it's called an irresistible call. It actually brings you to a state of salvation. It brings you into the presence of the Master, the Savior, who, who, who has mercy upon your soul. I want to talk to you a little while about this irresistible call. Go with me over to Romans chapter 8 for just a moment. Romans chapter 8. Now, verse 28 is a verse that we all know. We've all got it memorized. We love this verse. But I want to show you something from this verse related to God's call on your life. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good. Well, to who? To everybody in the world? No, he qualifies it. To those who love God, well, who are those? Who are the people that love God? Keep reading. To those who are called according to your purpose? It's according to God's purpose. God's sovereign purpose. There is a call he issues according to his sovereign purpose that enables you and I to love God. Well, what's this call like? Verse 29. For those whom he foreknew... He also predestined to become conformed to the image of His Son, so that He would be the firstborn among many brethren. This call in verse 28 is issued to those that God foreknows. You say, well, what's so special about that? Doesn't God foreknow everybody and everything? Foreknowledge in this verse, I do not believe, simply means that He knows ahead of time what's going to happen. It means that he knows what's going to happen because he has ordained it. Foreknowledge, to, to know someone in the Bible, often has the connotation of to love someone. It's a special loving relationship. And to foreknow someone is to forelove someone. It's to have determined ahead of time to enter into a saving, loving, covenant relationship with somebody. So it's akin to God's foreordination, that he has ordained what is going to pass. Okay, so verse 28 says, God causes all things to work together for good to those who are called. Well, what's that call all about? It, it's issued to those that He's foreknown, and those that He's foreknown, He has also predestined. Well, predestined to what? According to verse 29, to be conformed to the image of His Son. Now, is this talking about lost people? Are lost people going to be conformed to the image of His Son? Absolutely not. This is talking about every believer that ends up in heaven. God has not only foreknown them, but He has predestined to conform them to Jesus' image, to sanctify them. And then verse 30, this is the clincher. For those whom He foreknew, I'm sorry, verse 30, and these whom He predestined, He also called. And these whom He called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also 
glorified. Now think about that very carefully. What does it mean to be justified? Yes, yes, that's exactly right. You're, you're pure in the sight of God. Not because you and I are actually are pure, but because Jesus' robe of righteousness is given to us. The gift of salvation, the gift of righteousness is put upon us. So a person who's justified is a saved man. This, our Bible here shows us this unbreakable chain of salvation. There's five links in this chain of salvation. Foreknowledge, predestination, calling, justification, and glorification. And every one of the links leads to the next. And these links cannot be broken. Notice that in the text. These whom he predestined, he also called. It's saying there's a certain group of people that were foreknown. Those same people were predestined. Those same people are called. Those same people are justified. And those same people are glorified. You can't be justified unless you're called. And you can't be glorified unless you're justified. Nobody who starts out here being foreknown by God gets lost along the way, or they fall out of the chain. All of them make it through the chain to the end. No one gets added, and no one gets lost. This is God's sovereign, eternal purpose. God is Lord, and he's, He is Lord not only of the minor things, He's Lord of the, the most important thing, which is the salvation of His people. He is sovereign when it comes to that. Lord over all of that. So this call is a saving call. This effectual call actually brings us into a state of salvation. Over in 1 Peter, chapter 2, verse 9, says that He has called us out of darkness into His marvelous light. Okay, once we were in the kingdom of darkness, right? He called us out. That doesn't mean that He just invited us to come out. It means he brought us out. We, we, we couldn't come out. <laughs> the Bible says in 2 Timothy 2, around verse 26, that we were enslaved to the devil, bound to him. But it says, if perhaps God may grant repentance, leading to the knowledge of the truth, and you may escape from the snare, the, the, the chains that held you, and be free. This call frees a man from the chains of Satan frees him, brings him out of darkness, puts him into the kingdom of light. Oh, I, I hope you see the glory of what God has done for you, saints. <laughs> this should thrill your souls because God has not done that for every person in the world. Your neighbor that lives next to you that's still lost, they haven't been called yet like this. You, you, we owe an, an incredible debt of gratitude to our Savior. And for the Spirit of God to open these blinded eyes and to actually issue us the call, Brian, come to me. I was that blind beggar. I was living in rags. And he called me and he opened my eyes. And he brought me into his favor. And if you're a Christian, he did that for you. <laughs> we should never take this for granted, folks. When we were dead, he made us alive together with Christ. So this is the call that I, I hope you never get tired of hearing about and never get tired of thanking and praising God for. 
So Jesus' compassion, Jesus' command, look at Jesus' question in the call. Verse 40b. Let me get back there. Luke 18. And when he came near, he questioned him, What do you want me to do for you? And he said, Lord, I want to regain my sight. See, he was giving this blind man an opportunity to confess his faith. What do you want? Isn't it obvious, Lord? <laughs> Why do you even have to ask? Because he needs this blind man to make a confession. He needs to confess that I believe, number one, I believe that I need sight, that I'm blind. Number two, I believe that Jesus can give it to me. I want to regain my sight, Lord. So there's an opportunity to make confession. It's absolutely essential that all of us call upon the name of the Lord. Romans 10.9 says, that if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you'll be saved. Confession is part of the process by which we come into this state of salvation. We confess that Jesus is Lord. And verse 13 says that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. So he's giving him an opportunity to call upon his name and to make confession of who he is and admit his own desperate need. Okay, let's move to the fourth aspect of this story, and that's his cure. Let's think about the source of his cure this morning. Where'd the, where'd the cure come from? Well, Jesus says, receive your sight, your faith has made you well. So, on the one hand, we could say, okay, the source of his cure was his faith. But if we read Matthew chapter 19, or I think it's chapter 20, it's, it says that Jesus had compassion and touched his eyes and he said, receive your sight. So, what was the source? Was it Jesus and his power to communicate that healing? Or was it his faith that laid hold of Christ for the healing? And you can look at this from different angles and different aspects. It's like, let's say there's a little boy that's starving to death. And you see that, that you, you take a trip someplace, and we're not going to find this in America, but go someplace else where people actually starve to death and find the little boy and you bring him, you empty out your truckload trunk load of food and and you say here here i want you to eat please and the little boy weakly reaches out his hand and takes the bread from you and starts to eat what saved him was it you was it your bread that you gave him or was it his hand that took that bread well see the hand is the instrument that receives what is needed to be kept from perishing it's the instrument of salvation but the agent of salvation is Jesus. Ephesians 2, 8 says, For by grace <clears throat> we have been saved through faith. Now the prepositions there are really important. By grace, through faith. It doesn't say through grace, by faith, because that would be incorrect. We're not saved by faith. We're saved through faith. The little boy was saved through reaching out his hand and taking the bread but he was saved by you, giving him the bread. You see? Jesus is the agent, the source of salvation. Our faith is the hand of the soul that reaches out and receives the gift that he offers to us, the instrument of salvation. Notice the results of his cure. There's two of them. Verse 43 says, Immediately he regained his sight, and number one, began following him, 
Number two, glorifying God. And when all the people saw it, they gave praise to God. It says he started to follow Jesus. When you read the book of Luke, and it talks about people following Jesus, what does that denote? He's talking about a disciple. If any man will come after me, let him take up his cross daily, uh, deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. These are code words for a disciple. This man became a disciple of Jesus. He started following him literally on the road because he wanted to follow the master who had healed him. The word following is talking about obedience, obedience to Jesus Christ. But that's not all. He began glorifying God. It says that this man was also a worshiper. Obedience and worship. Isn't that beautiful? To, I mean, the, the split second after Jesus heals him, he's obeying Jesus and worshiping God, bringing glory to him. And these are two of the fruits of salvation that will result from the life of the person that the Spirit of God touches with new life. So let's, let's take a look at this and get an overview of it. I want you to, well, let me just ask you, any blind Bartimaeus is here today? Well, all of us were at one time. And it's possible that there are still some here who are. Have you ever seen your hopeless condition apart from Jesus Christ? That you're spiritually blind, a pauper, having nothing to offer God? Have you ever cried out for mercy like this blind man did? And did that cry include a sense of urgency and tenacity and expectancy and humility? Have you ever responded to God's call? The general call in the gospel. Didn't, did you hear that and respond? Well, that's because there was an inward call going on that reached not just the ear, but the heart. Have you ever been cured of your blindness? Can you see? Can you see the glory of Christ? If so, you will follow Jesus and you will worship God. Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice and they follow me. If you're not following Jesus, maybe it's because you never heard his voice. Maybe it's because you're not a disciple. His sheep hear his voice and they follow. Every one of them follow him. Not perfectly, but that's the bent of their life. It's the direction of their life. Yes, we sin and we fail to follow the way we ought, but we do follow. And when we find out that we have made mistakes and we've sinned against Christ, we repent and he begins to lead us in a more diligent following of the Lord. If you've never been saved, this can be the day of salvation because Jesus is passing by. Maybe you can at least notice, yeah, yeah, something's different in this room. These people have something that I've never seen before. What is it? It's Jesus Christ who can heal you, who can take away your blindness and can open up your heart to his glory. Let's pray. Father, thank you for showing us the riches of blind Bartimaeus and how you dealt in mercy with him. <laughs> thank you for the mercy you've granted us. Lord, we don't deserve any of your kindnesses, but we are so grateful for them. I pray, Lord, that you would show each of us lessons of how we can apply the principles we see in blind Bartimaeus to our own lives, even as believers today. Open up our eyes and heart. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.